Hey everyone, Eric here. Very quickly before we get to our discussion today with Mingwei Huang, I want to make sure that you know about the Daily China Africa email newsletter that Cobus and I put together. It's a comprehensive digest of everything going on in the China Africa space. Everything from debt to diplomacy, tech, culture, it's all there. And then every story that we write for the newsletter is then indexed on our website, and it's now an amazing archive of thousands of articles with videos, links, graphics all in one place. It's a great research tool. Subscriptions are super affordable. Just $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everyone else. If you're interested in trying it out, just head over to chinaafricaproject.com/subscribe. You'll get 2 weeks free just to see if you like it. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com/subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Vitz University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, before we get to our show today, I want to make sure that we bring you an update about some of the Chinese COVID-19 vaccine developments in Africa, because there's been quite a bit of news this week, and it's rather important. So, and I just feel that's really important to update our podcast audience. We've been talking about this all week in our daily newsletter, and there has been some really interesting development. First,、uh, that came out on Wednesday is that the Chinese government has arranged a deal between Cainiao, and Cainiao is the logistics arm of Alibaba,、uh, and I cannot emphasize how important this announcement is. Between Cainiao and Ethiopian Airlines, they've struck a deal to create what's effectively a cold chain. Distribution network that will transport vaccines from Shenzhen to Addis Ababa. They're going to be starting with twice weekly flights, and this is really now we're starting to see the architecture of what the distribution network is going to look like. This was one of the big questions, and the fact that the Chinese government has brought in such a heavy hitter like Cainiao to do it is an indication of the weight that they are attaching to this initiative. So. These new、uh, this air bridge, if you will, will be able to transport vaccines at minus twenty three degrees Celsius. Now that is another clue and another very important clue about the Chinese vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine、uh, has to be refrigerated at minus seventy degrees, and that was always seen as a major impediment for developing countries in places like Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East because of the necessity of the cold chain that has to be maintained. Now, minus twenty-three is still very cold, but it is not minus seventy. A couple other points here, Kobus. Ethiopia is the partner of choice. This is very important distinction here. So Addis Ababa will be one of the hubs. Dubai is going to be another one. I think this was interesting because Ethiopia was the partner of choice for the Jack Ma Foundation when they were delivering PPE. To、uh, all every African country, it looks like they're going to build on the experience of that distribution effort that they did, and they're going to piggyback on that. Also, let's not forget they are creating vaccine production hubs in both Egypt and in Morocco. The one in Egypt is ready to go. 
Uh, the one in Morocco is still in development. They have not announced a vaccine production hub in sub-Saharan Africa, but that is uh, probably going to come in the future as well. And remember, we said two weekly flights. Once the full manufacturing process of the vaccines gets full speed up in China, my guess is that we will see a lot more than just two flights a week coming in from China. But they're going to be producing both in Egypt, possibly in Morocco, as well as these flights from China. So, Cobus, that is really adding a lot of detail to the plans that we've been wondering. We still don't know about the cost and the availability. They're still in phase three clinical trials, but they are probably going to start coming out of that just as the Pfizer vaccine has now. What do you think about all this, Cobus? I think it's very interesting to hear. I think it's 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 very encouraging that Sanyao is, is involved because, as you um, pointed out um, in a, in our newsletter intro today, actually that um, that this is they have a logistics operation that's literally larger than Amazon's. Um, you know that that they they are the people who who run the shipping on on China's single day. You know singles day shopping jamboree um which is billions of dollars worth of, of of goods being shipped in a single day um so you know it's very encouraging what, what i also think is <laughs> is it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out geopolitically um because you know like the obviously the foundation built by by china's vaccine diploma uh, china's um, ppe diplomacy um you know that we saw through 2020 built up in africa will be i mean this will be so much bigger than that you know so so, so it's going to be fascinating to see how how all of it shakes out, particularly in the larger context of all of the anxieties in Africa and other parts of the global South about when they'll be able to to source vaccines, and you know the the fear that that the global North is going to be hoarding them. So, yeah, very interesting. I mean, it's an indication that China is definitely seeing this opportunity in a bid to play to win. This is not a half-assed move that they're making by bringing in Tsainyao. Tsainyao's technology as well, and this is, again, Alibaba's technology, is used in Southeast Asia here on the Lazada platform. And, and this logistics intelligence that they bring is so critical, particularly in emerging markets, uh, where it's not easy to do it. So they're bringing in really a, a very heavy hitter. And I just recommend for people to dig into this. But I would be very nervous if I was sitting in the State Department tonight watching this news. Um, this is going to be potentially an enormous step. If China can deliver even 70% of the promise, 80%, like they don't even have to deliver fully on this thing. It will be a geopolitical win of what I called on Twitter today of staggering proportions. So mm. that is, uh, that's my take on this, in part because I don't think the Europeans and the Americans are really in the game at anywhere near the level of what the Chinese look like they're doing. Again, there's a lot of details that we need to iron out. Okay, let's now shift gears. I just wanted to bring that update. Now let's shift gears to our discussion today about race and identity and architecture in Johannesburg. Now, Kobus, uh, you, you are South African. Um, before we get into our discussion about race and identity, uh, it, it, particularly in the Chinese community in South Africa, so much of what we're going to talk about today is based on the idea of apartheid. Now, for a lot of our listeners who are my age, I'm 50, uh, you are about that age, I won't ask you I'm, on the radio. I'm 46. On the 46. Okay, there we go. Um, we grew up when apartheid was still around. You lived in apartheid when you were a yes. child. Um, as, a, yes, I think, as a child. Yeah. And I think let's start our discussion today about race and identity in the Chinese community in South Africa with first 
an introduction as to what apartheid is, because a lot of our listeners uh, were not alive, in fact, when apartheid was around. So can you just kind of map it out for us and talk to us about the totality of this racial systemic infrastructure that they had? As a as a South African, I always get a little aggravated when when people kind of throw around apartheid to simply mean to simply either mean a separateness between two different groups or um, or simply racism. And of course, those two those two aspects were very very key to apartheid. But it, it, to 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 think of it, it, it it's something closer to the Jim Crow system in the U.S. in the sense that it's an, it was an entire economy that was run on on forcing certain groups of people into certain labor categories that they couldn't escape from. Um, and th- and those labor categories were racially categorized. So, you know, it was essentially setting up an entire country's labor system on the back of making it almost impossible for for uh, for the majority of the population to 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 be to become socially mobile. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to you know, it's really important for South Africans to keep, you know, kind of digging up, you know, kind of new ways of thinking about apartheid and rethinking apartheid because it structures every aspect of life in South Africa at the moment. In the same way that that Jim Crow still still structures life in in, in parts of the U.S. Um, but the, the the difference being that um, that in South Africa it wasn't it wasn't a simple black white division as it, as it was in, in in the in the South in the U.S. It was it was a more complicated racial division you know which which ended up then then really kind of impacting on daily life you know in 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 countless ways um and it set up whole ways of thinking whole ways of talking and particularly in, as as we look at today whole ways of building the city of, stru- of s- s- like structuring the city that south africans still have to kind of nego- like negotiate their way around today um you know and 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 this is this is one of the issues that, that we dealt with in in this new book okay let's talk about that book it's called anxious joburg the inner lives of a global south city it was actually edited by yourself and Nikki Falkoff. It was and printed by Witz University Press. If you go into the table of contents and head down to chapter seven, you're going to see a chapter called The Chinatown Backroom, The Afterlife of Apartheid. And now you'll see why we wanted you, Kobus, to do this introduction to apartheid. It's written by uh, Mingwei Huang, an old friend of the show. The last time she was on the show was back in 2015. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Mingwei, she's an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and joins us from a very chilly morning in Vermont. A very good morning to you, Mingwei, and welcome back to the show. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kobes. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the program again and to talk about the, the chapter in the book. It's a fascinating read, and I'm hoping that a lot of people will be able to read it. Let's start with a little bit of background about the Chinese diaspora and the Chinese community before we get into the details of your chapter. Uh, you, you talk about how South Africa is home to the oldest and largest Chinese diaspora in Africa. The population's estimated between 300 and 350,000, although people really don't know an exact number. And the roots go all the way back to the 19th century and even before. Uh, tell us a little bit about the population that's there before we get into the details of what you were writing about in the chapter. Sure. So I, I started my research in 2013, and the the this kind of segment of the Chinese community in South Africa I work on are kind of what um, people often you know, think of as the new migrants, um, people who came, um, you know, after 
1998, um, the year that South Africa and um, the PRC normalized relations. Um, so I look at, I mean, now it's been like 20 years, but, um, you know, this kind of uh, the, the new migrants that came largely from Fujian province, Guangdong province, um, many became um, kind of small scale traders in Johannesburg, um, where I did my research. Um, so that's kind of the so so with the with the large kind of diasporic population, you had earlier waves of the Taiwanese and um, the and the um, you know people from Hong Kong, um, and then you have like three four generations of um, South African born Chinese. Um, so my work is is on that kind of the new wave, um, and what I'm really interested in is kind of situating um, situating new Chinese migration within, um, you know, this kind of post-apartheid um, through various different layers of history in South Africa. So you spent um, a lot of your time in, in a suburb called Cyrildine, which is kind of one of the, the uh, kind of a new chi- prominent Chinatown in Johannesburg. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what your, your fieldwork entailed um, and what Cyrildine is like? Yeah, so Cyrildine was a suburb kind of um, built in the late 1930s. And before Chinese moved in, um, in the 90s, it was a largely, I believe, Jewish and Portuguese suburb. Um, but it was kind of built as a as a, a place, kind of a more affordable place um, for in the northern suburbs, um, kind of a, a respectable um you know, safe um, kind of suburb for people who couldn't afford some of the other northern suburbs. Um, But it's on the east side of the city. Um, So my work started out doing field work with these traders in in Johannesburg's China malls. Um, So it's particular, I think, to to kind of big cities. Um, when I was in Cape Town, there there were, were far fewer of these malls, and I think a lot of it has to do with kind of the, we'll talk about it, but kind of the terrain of security um, in Johannesburg. And there just are so many more traders, um, Chinese traders in Joburg. So you get these these kind of, these big wholesale shopping, um, shopping complexes. Um, so I, I started there, and one of the, um, mall owners, kind of one of these prominent um, Chinese businessmen, um, you know, I I wanted to initially that some of these malls have apartments on site where traders live. Again, this a lot has to do with the securitization of, of, of life in Joburg. Um, but I wanted to do my field work, um, you know, at, at this mall and live at the mall. Um, and I had the okay to do so. And then, um, without letting me know, the the, the business, um, this mall owner actually, um, when I arrived in Joburg, um, said, well, you're actually going to live with my friend, um, who is the boss of Cyrildine Chinatown. So um, that's how I ended up there. So I lived, I lived with um, the man who had managed Cyrildine Chinatown for over a decade. Um, so I, I lived there. And that's the house that I write about. Um, so, and then I also was doing um, ethnographic fieldwork at this mall. 
and I I worked at the at the sh- two different shops. So and I ran someone's shop when they were in China for about a month. So I I really kind of um got into kind of the the really uh mundane aspects of kind of of everyday life for Chinese traders um kind of working working um in these malls and then also kind of living among traders and trader families in in Cyrildine and then eventually I did um live at that that mall apartment um after all so it was kind of a a very long immersive process but this man who you in the book gave him the name Mr. Jung, he's not just a businessman, and he had a much bigger role in the community. Give us a little about the colorful background that he has. Well, he is he is quite. Um, I won't get into too many details. I, I'm kind of working on it for the book, but he is quite a important kind of local figure among traders, especially kind of among Fujianese. Um, so he was pretty integral with helping people get set up um, with um, kind of immigration processes and also just getting started, um, you know, when people first arrive. Uh, Cyril Dean is often kind of the, the kind of touchdown point for people who, um, who kind of first, first arrive in Johannesburg. So he was quite integral in... Um, the making of this migration wave with um, with um, kind of arranging to bring people over um, and kind of getting them sorted out um, with kind of immigration documents. Um, and, you know, whenever, uh, whenever there, there were any kind of, say, community disputes or just... Um, you know, any sorts of these sorts of issues, he was kind of within a handful of kind of local uh, business leaders who would kind of be these kind of touchstones um, within the Chinese community. Um, so for for ordinary migrants, you know, they don't have much connection with the state, whether that's the South African government, like, um, or um, with the Chinese embassy in Johannesburg. So usually you know, these sorts of, um, you know, there might be like 10 um, Chinese kind of business leaders who are these these kind of important figures within the community. So he was one of them. Um, and the, per- the mall owner who introduced me to him was another one of them. Um, so I, I was able to kind of um, learn a little bit more about about that world, um, and then also kind of with the with the traders, you know, who are kind of in this hierarchy, um, you know, a level or two below. You've mentioned uh, Fujian and Fujianese, and I just not everybody may be familiar with the geography and the population. Uh, Fujian Province is in southeastern uh, China. It's also historically been a main emigration point out of China to places like San Francisco and New York have large Fujianese populations as well as in many parts of Africa, including Johannesburg. Kobus, go ahead. So, you know, one of the main themes of of your chapter is architecture um, and particularly the way that architecture kind of manifests South Africa's weird, you know, mixture of like racial anxiety and, you know, anxieties about crime and so on. I wonder if you could 
you know, talk about the the way that the house has been designed and redesigned, um, and particularly also, you know, like lay out what a maid's room is and what what the what the significance of the maid's room is in that house. Right. So the, this house, like I mentioned before, was you know built built in the probably you know nineteen thirties, nineteen forties. So what was quite standard with a lot of suburban homes in Johannesburg. Um, was there was kind of a whole kind of back quarters, um, you know, servants' quarters, as they might be called before, the maid's room, um, that was, you know, consisted of, say, um, you know, an outhouse, um, uh, kind of a separate, a small separate room where one or two uh, live-in domestic workers might live, um, and so that was usually separate. It was in the yard. It was, you know, sometimes, you know, covered up by bushes or it was behind the main house. Um, and often, you know, so other scholars of jo- kind of architecture in Joburg have written about it. But, you know, usually, you know, the living room is kind of, you know, front facing. Um, and then the kitchen is at the back of the house. It's, you know, separated with maybe a little yard. And then it's the kind of the, the maid's the, the maid's room, right? So the idea of um, a live-in domestic worker, you know, a, a black South African woman um, would have most access to, you know, that back of the main house and be the least visible. So um, it's the way that kind of architecture enshrined the place of um, domestic labor in, in kind of suburban Johannesburg or South Africa um, to be, you know, domestic labor was um, essential. It was it was integral to the functioning of of a household. It was, you know, key to um, white middle class um, domesticity. But it also needed to be kind of out of sight as much as possible. So it wasn't even within the house. Um, I think some of the other reasons why it was separate was because of these um, anxieties around. Um, before, you know, during the colonial period, um, it was called the Black Peril Panic, this um, fear that, you know, domestic workers um, or, you know, um, kind of African um, workers in the house were potential kind of criminal or sexual threats, right? This was kind of like white settler panic. Um, So for all these reasons... Um, these suburban houses, you know, if you look, they'll have, you know, there, there'll be like a little room to the back of the yard. Um, and, and your co-editor, Nikki Falkoff, wrote um, a really great piece that really helped me kind of think about this when I was doing my field work. Um, a lot of these houses, you know, new houses have kind of converted those little back rooms into, you know, garden cottages and they rent them out. Um, but that has a lot to do with, um, the legacy of these rooms and kind of what they stand for, these kind of colonial and, you know, hyper-racial um, relations of servitude, right? And they're also gendered. It's largely um, um, black women, um, historically South African, but also more and more kind of um, African, Southern African migrant women um, who, who do this uh, do this work of running households um, in often these less visible um, positions. Um, so I think uh, a lot of these houses have kind of tried to 
get rid of those back rooms um, or, you know, not rely on live-in domestic labor. But here in this Cyril Dean Chinatown um, house that I ended up in, um, what's really interesting about it is, you know, um, Mr. Zhang, he, he, you know, he, he bought this house, you know, in the early 2000s, and he really kind of rebuilt it for the needs of you know, Chinese traders who are often much more transient, right? They have, um, they have families and homes in China. They kind of go in and out. Sometimes their family members join them. Um, sometimes they, they pick up and leave and, and they go somewhere else. So um, for a lot of um, uh, these kind of wholesale family businesses, their housing situations can be quite um, uh, kind of transient, right? So so he had this huge house and he kind of um, built it out to accommodate some extra rooms and also rented a lot of those rooms out um, to other people. So there are all of these kind of traders, um, you know, mostly people from Fujian province um, milling around in his house and me. And then he also had, you know, several family members, kind of extended family members. Um, but what took me... Oh, and, and the Chinatown office was also kind of built around, you know, I, he, I think what he did was he, he physically built kind of structures around the exterior to, you know, um, to enlarge in it, to enlarge it. So um, the Chinatown office used to be just like annexed to, to that living room. Um, but what, what was interesting is I realized that um, there was a, a live-in domestic worker um, who I write about there. I, I call her Sarah. Um, but she lived in what used to be, or what still is, um, kind of a back room. Um, but it was harder to recognize it as such because he had kind of filled in that yard space that has typically separated the back room from the main house. Um, and that middle space was kind of this, it, it looks very much like a chi- like a kitchen that you would find in China, you know, with the big kind of um, the big propane tanks, you know, and the and the walks. And it, it, it's a very familiar space um, if you've seen kitchens in China. Um, and I haven't been to China in a long time, but it, you know, reminded me of, you know, my grandparents, um, their kitchens, of, of the kind of kitchen spaces I've seen in China. So um, this house is really this interesting kind of hybrid of these, it, you know, it's a very distinctively kind of Johannesburg suburban house, but then also very distinctively kind of a, a space for Chinese traders, you know, who, who kind of live a bit transiently and, you know, do things like cook communal meals. Um, so that's, that's kind of the peculiar kind of house I, I lived in. You know, South Africa is a lot like the United States in that race permeates everything. And it's inseparable from almost every aspect of life. And I'm curious about continuing our discussion on architecture. How does the architecture, the physical external spaces, exterior spaces, inform us about the racial dynamics today in in South Africa and in Johannesburg from from your research? Because you have these great pictures in the in your chapter about the exteriors, and you talk to to that. How does that inform us about? where Chinese are vis-a-vis other racial groups in within the, the racial hierarchy of Johannesburg? Well, with the 
with the kind of built environment and the exteriors, I think, and, and Kobus mentioned this um, earlier, I think, you know, the city was really built around, you know, these, um, you know, these racialized labor flows, right, that built the city. And, and um, after apartheid, I think there, there have been um, attempts to kind of integrate the city, right, um, across race and class. And I think Cyril Dean is another another one of those places where it's kind of grappling with um, grappling with the kind of architectural legacies um, of of apartheid of you know all this kind of intense racial and class segregation, but also something new is kind of taking shape there. Um, basically, since Chinese migrants have have um, moved in, and I think uh, you know a lot. A lot of the you know literature that I read um, on Johannesburg, a lot of it is, revolves around a kind of black-white kind of color line or binary, and I think new Chinese migrants certainly you know step into this really complicated racial terrain, um, and then kind of locate themselves in it sometimes rather kind of unwittingly. Um, but they're also read within those kind of racial categories and racial hierarchies. It's so, you know, race has always been complicated in South Africa and it continues to be today. And and when you, I think one of the things that it's, you know, structures my line of inquiry with much of the work I do is when you have kind of new, new Chinese migrants who don't quite fit that, you know, the black, white binary, I think, a lot of racial relations, um, you know, have kind of grappled with where to where to situate, um, whether Chinese Americans, Asian Americans in the U.S., um, or um, Asian Asian people in South Africa. Um, but it's also complicated because they come in after 1994. Um, they don't quite know the kind of racial histories and racial relations, but but they're in it. Um, and they're kind of read as sometimes like white, um, but also, you know, kind of othered as, you know, the Chinese. Um, so they, they are also somewhere in this, in this mix of hierarchies. Um, and I think, I think that the Chinatown back room is a good, uh, it's it's rare, right? In the book in the book chapter, I write that it's not like there are a ton of these all over Cyril Dean, but that particular house is a good way of um, it's a symbol of of you know what the kind of ambiguities around where to place new Chinese migrants in the kind of the racial relations and the kind of the real physical material remains of apartheid. So they kind of, right, new Chinese migrants kind of step into this racial terrain um, and then they kind of make something out of it. And how we interpret it can still be quite, quite, um, it's still quite ambiguous um, what to make of it. It's really like there's all of these kind of historical entanglements and kind of, and, and murk around um, how to think about it.
So one of one of the aspects of of the book that that many different contributors touch on in di- in different ways is is the, is this issue of of how Johannesburg people talk about crime, um, and then you know very frequently um, Johannesburg crime talk is coded f- in in complicated ways to also refer to lots of other things including race, uh, particularly race, um, and and you like in in your chapter you you highlight this really fascinating situation where frequently these traders. Would work with 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 African Black African South African and from from elsewhere on the continent um, <clears throat> workers in in their shops and develop very long relationships with them. But then the relationships don't really. It's not a situation where the relationship really warms over time. In fact, in in many cases, as it goes on, the relationship just gets more and more bitter. Um, and there's all of this paranoia about crime being an inside job and like you know kind of having these. You know, kind of this this kind of anxiety around about these kind of intimate working relationships between different races. You know, kind of w- with this constant fear of being sold out to criminals by these same people you're working with. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about these kind of racial dynamics and 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 how, you know, kind of how Chinese kind of race and crime talk differs from other South Africans. Yeah. So, crime talk really it it inde- it's about something else, and often it's about race. Um, sometimes it's, um, you know, a way to express, you know, frustration with kind of the perceived failures of the state or, you know, police to kind of protect property. Um, but among Chinese, I think, I think crime talk does two things or it, it kind of indexes two different things. There's kind of a, um, the idea of, and of course it's racialized, it's, you know, the idea of kind of black, black criminality writ large um, that has to do with, um, I think, Chinese traders being afraid in, in public space, whether that's a shopping mall or that's driving on the street. Um, or, you know, it, I think that indexes something about how Chinese migrants feel about being in a global South city, in an African city. Um, it's how they think about um, Johannesburg, something I heard again and again, Johannesburg is, um, they would use the word Luan, like it's like a, like a disorderly or backwards place. So the idea, when they, when they talk about crime and particularly kind of armed robberies, they're talking about kind of this this kind of straw man, this idea of black criminality in kind of a disorderly global South city, where the also where the kind of they see police as, you know, people who harass them, not per, you know protect them. Um, but as you mentioned, crime also kind of it, it's a way that I think people talk about labor relations, um, and and this kind of anxiety and this paranoia around like an inside job. So um, that's especially with kind of employees who have kind of worked with um, traders for a long time. So um, it kind of, it, it, it indexes two things. And so with the kind of bitterness, so you'll, you'll have at these malls, um, most, of the, most of the shop workers at these malls in Johannesburg um, You'll have like maybe one or two Chinese workers, depending on the size of the shop. And then you'll have, you know, sometimes three or four, sometimes one, sometimes a dozen, um, mostly mig- migrant workers, undocumented um, from Malawi and Zimbabwe. 
um, who are dependent on you know Chinese employers, you know who who will um, give them steady employment um, when when they don't have papers. So um, you know they work very low wages and often for a very long time, and that um, can lead to you know real bitterness and resentment. Um, so I think with Chinese employers, because this this happens every now and then, it I think crime and talk of crime is quite quite outsized, um, but you know a few kind of high profile incidents um, will really kind of shake traders, um, and so I think there is this fear that kind of the workers will avenge you know their their conditions of exploitation and, and being kind of if being grossly underpaid. Um, so a lot of the fear with crime, it's kind of this broad kind of racial stereotypes of black criminality, and then also this much closer fear of, of the inside job that, you know, it, it's because of the labor conditions. Um, but there's this other kind of nested contradiction within crime. So I think crime and anxiety are really fascinating ways to think about sociality in, in Johannesburg, but also, you know, China-Africa relations like this podcast examines. Um, because crime crime really indexes, is, is a way of indexing labor. And um, one of the other nested contradictions within there is sometimes the anxiety is actually about Chinese, about competition with other Chinese or, or crime from, um, you know, for a long time in Johannesburg, the Chinese, you know, mafia underground world was, um, was something that people really contended with in Chinatown, in Cyril Dean. Um, sometimes there's fear of betrayal of, you know, Chinese workers stealing from you or, you know, becoming your business competitor. So there was actually paranoia kind of moving in all sorts of directions around money, around um, around crime. Um, but I think most of it was kind of placed into this kind of figure of black criminality. Um, and people rarely ever really talked about kind of crime um, within kind of the Chinese community. Um, and then also, so when you look, think about domestic work, I mean, in South Africa in general, there, there always is, you know, worry that it, it's an, whenever something happens, it's an inside job. It was, you know, a domestic worker's boyfriend, or perhaps she did it herself, or, you know, it was the gardener. Um, so, you know, that fear of the inside job, you know, that traders have at, um, at, at these malls, plus the kind of paranoia around inside jobs that come with domestic labor, um, those kind of, um, you know, converge in this situation. Let's pull back the lens a little bit just as we start to wind down our discussion and look at the question of assimilation, because when we talk about Chinese migration to Africa, uh, a lot of Africans and then others who are looking at this issue question whether first-generation Chinese are able to assimilate in Africa. And this becomes a very complicated question in a place like South Africa because, as you've noted in your research for many years, the population in South Africa dates back centuries. In fact, if I'm correct, I think the British brought over Chinese to work in South Africa. 
uh, dating back during the, the British colonial period. And so that question of assimilation, you'll have people who are fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, tenth generation Chinese in in South Africa on top of these new migrants that you talk about who've come in the post-94 era. How do we talk about assimilation and what does this tell us about the generally speaking in terms of Chinese assim- migrant assimilation in, in Africa more general? So you do have the more, the, you know, multiple generations um, and the newer migrants, and they don't really interact very much. Um, and, you know, there, there are a couple um, writers like um, Ufreda Ho, the you know, journalist and author um, of Paper Sons and, and Daughters, writes about this in her memoir, too, um, about kind of feelings about or, or just a kind of a disconnect um, with, with the new kind of um, new arrivants. Um, and the, the kind of new, new migrants, they, they don't really see themselves or they don't quite connect with the older generation. So they'll refer to um, kind of South African-born um, uh, Chinese as, you know, um, Hua Chao or, you know, Lao Chao. So the idea of like kind of a diasporic community. Um, and they refer to themselves as like Chinese people. Um, so their kind of sense of home and connection is still kind of rooted in, in the mainland. And I think for them, Johannesburg, whether you're, you know, I, I, you know, talked to, met with, you know, people who had been in Joburg for, you know, only a couple months to, um, over 10 years and had permanent residence. Um, but even then, Joburg, interestingly, is not kind of where people really, you know, see themselves in the future. It's kind of, it's like a place where they are. Um, also in, in my house in Cyrildine, it was quite interesting. There would be, um, you know, a, a Fujianese couple who had been um, in Joburg for, for a decade um, but all of a sudden they they picked up and they moved. They went to, you know, Argentina um, because um, a lot of traders started leaving um, Johannesburg because the market had just been so saturated and, you know, people talked about crime and the, the currency ex- um, exchange rates were, were um, less favorable. So people kind of pick up and move um, to other locales. People were going to... Um, Ghana, Mozambique, um, the DRC, from from trading in Johannesburg. So people are kind of looking for for kind of greener pastures. Um, so I think for the newer migrants, even I, I don't think Johannesburg is kind of where they really see themselves and where they're trying to, um, you know, really integrate. Um, but they but at the same time they are really integrating. Um, they they. They do, you know, um, make new lives there, and um, it maybe just doesn't quite fall into kind of um, how we think about assimilation. Um, but I think that that also with with my own work of thinking, when I was spending all this time in Cyrildine, is this is this Johannesburg or is this something else? And but it it really is something that is you know this world that I call Chinese Johannesburg, that, that is Johannesburg, um, even, even when it seems a little touch and go. So, so the long answer to your question about assimilation is perhaps, yes, people are, but it, it's like less recognizable 
but I think the attachments to being in South Africa is still is still quite loose. Nikki and I recently did an interview with um, with uh, Judd Devermont um, at um, CSIS um, and Marielle Harris, I think is her surname. Sorry, um, if I'm messing that up. Um, and um, you know, and uh, you know about uh, for a program that they, where they focus on African urbanism. Um, and they asked us, uh, which turned out quite tricky, to be a, quite a tricky question. Um, you know, what kind of what kind of insights or lessons from uh, one can take um, by looking at Joburg to, uh, and what, which kind of lessons can one apply um, into looking at North America, for example? Um, so obviously, you've you've spent a lot of time in North America. You, you've spent a lot of time here um, in Johannesburg. Like, wh- what what has how has being in Joburg and, and looking so closely at this kind of experience in Joburg, how has that shifted your view of, of the U.S.? Oh, that's a great question. That's I think you stumped me there. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Mutually stumped. I, I think was also that, stumped. that's definitely a I, you know, I really appreciate in, in the introduction that you and Nikki Falkoff wrote, um, you know, there, Joburg is an interesting place and it's probably the most written about African city. Um, And it almost feels like, what is there new to say about Joburg? But also people have endless things to say about London or LA or Shanghai, you know. Um, Joburg is kind of the city that kind of keeps, it keeps shape-shifting. We should continue to study it. you know, I'm not sure if this is really quite answering your question, but I will say, at least, you know, in, in this little experience in the world in Chinese Joburg, it's really where, you know, multiple kinds of of urbanism is coming together. So the way I write about it or think about it in the chapter, it's, you know, my reading of this space was really informed by, um, you know, the, the little time in my adult life that I have spent in China um, and kind of the, the layout of a house. Um, it also is, you know, you might think about um, kind of other ways that, that people live in China, um, you know, the walls and kind of new gated communities and how that converges with kind of the gated com- community and the walled compounds in Johannesburg. Um, but I, I think Every time I come back to the U.S. from a stint of fieldwork in Joburg, um, I I feel like my relationship to the city changes. I, I think also, you know, the adrenaline um, that is the experience of being in Joburg. Um, you know, you kind of go back to other North American cities or now in Vermont. I can, you know, I can't even say I'm in a city. Um, <laughs> what a contrast it, from Vermont to, jo- to Joburg. I mean, for those of you not familiar <laughs> with Vermont, there's... Not a, you're probably one of the only non-white people in the state, and uh, <laughs> there's just trees everywhere. So, yes, I it is it is a very um, it's quite a 180 to go from Ver- Vermont to jo- Johannesburg, but um, I you know I I still I think about Johannesburg all the time when I'm in, and it's it's funny also the I I really miss the kind of. The, the pace of life in Johannesburg. Um, and I think Joburg does have a lot to teach us about about city life. Um, so, you know, you stumped me on the question, but I think uh, it, it, it is really a very particular 
place to be in. Um, and I think Cyril is also one of these like very peculiar kind of places that, that you know, I, I, I went to Cyril thinking I would find something like a, like a Chinatown in the U.S. Um, but I, th- I think there's something, I, I think the, the Chinatown, the historic, the, the first Chinatown in, um, in Johannesburg is a little bit more like a, um, you know, it's smaller version of a, like a New York um, city Chinatown that's a bit more established. But Cyril Dean is kind of, um, kind of its own its own world with with lots of different layers. More subdued as well, I find the American Chinatowns in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco tend to be more visually expressive, and in Johannesburg, uh, I found that to be more conservative on the outside, at least. Yeah, there's a lot of. Like I, I got a sense. Like there's, there's, there are whole worlds, multiple nested worlds within Cyril Dean, um, and I think I, you know, maybe cracked a couple of them. But there's, there's a lot more going on that meets the eye. You know, it's, it's also it's, it's nested and hidden because because everything in Johannesburg is about is also about breaking lines of sight. You know, that's why it's such a walled city. It's all about like hiding things, not showing things, not exposing yourself visually. So, you know, so so you never know what's going on behind all these walls. And I think that's particularly true in, in this world. The book is Anxious Joburg, The Inner Lives of a Global South City, edited by Nikki Falkoff and none other than Kobus van Staden. Kobus, is the book available yet? Yes, it's available from from Wits University Press in, in, in South Africa and then globally through NYU Press. And can you, is there a digital version of it so people can download it? Yes, there's a, there's a Kindle version on Amazon. Okay, so when you buy your Kindle version, please tell me it's not like 150 bucks. It's academic prices, but, but we fought them down, so it's not as crazily expensive. Okay, good. So when you get your Kindle version, then scroll down to uh, the chapter seven, which is the Chinatown back room, the afterlife of apartheid by Mingwei Huang. Mingwei is an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Dartmouth College, an old friend of ours and the program. Mingwei, thank you so much for getting up early to join us on the program all the way from Vermont. We really appreciate it. Hopefully it will not be five years again before you join us for a, a, another time on the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Kobus, you edited the book. Mingwei's chapter was just one chapter within a much larger narrative that you were. How did it fit within the the other chapters in the story that you were trying to tell with this book? Well, the the we started the book originally because we were we were very interested in this in this situation where if if you look at global south cities from the global north they're almost always seen as some kind of problem to solve you know it's like if if you, if you think about the way that that for example uh, you know, um, like Tijuana, for example, or you know, uh, Medellin, or like other other kind of cities in 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 Latin America, are seen from the perspective of North America. For example, they they they're almost always seen as this kind of like source of problems, you know, or like a problem themselves that needs to be solved. And and we, so we were obsessed about what did what does it mean 
to be in Johannesburg? And then particularly also, like, wh like what is it, you know, why why is it important, I think, to, to th when you think about cities, to also think about the emotions you feel in the city? So we decided to focus on anxiety um, rather than fear, for example, because because anxiety has this aspect to it where it's kind of it's kind of free-floating. You know, kind of you can feel anxiety about lots of things at the same time without being particularly fearful of something specific. And so that kind of anxiety, I think that is the default, you know, kind of experience of 2020, I think, for the whole world is that kind of free-floating, like, underlying hum that, that you kind of, that, that you feel, you just don't feel 100% at ease, you know, um, even as you go about kind of anodyne tasks. So that is life in Johannesburg. That is, that is kind of, that feeling is magnified by being in Johannesburg. And so we were, we were then pulling in lots of different voices, um, because Johannesburg is such a, it's a such a complex city, um, with so many different communities, so many different ways of living, um, you know, so so you, it's it's a city literally where within less than a kilometer apart you could have one one you know kind of person who is like works at an ad agency and has a cocaine problem, and someone else who who is living with her entire family and another family in a in a single room where they where everyone is dependent on one single government grant, for example, to to survive, you know, so. So, so like the, the, those 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 kind of experiences are all kind of squished together in, in into the city you know kind of where where everyone is feeling anxious all the time so so we we ended up kind of pulling in all of these different voices like both established academics like 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 Mingwei and Derek Hook for example um like younger early career academics and then um you know non-academic voices from from photographers journalists um you uh you know we have, we have one series of stories um by a, a professional storyteller who just just simply looks at the anxiety of being being um being a, a woman in Johannesburg like dealing with Johannesburg's very annoying um, public transportation system um so you know so it's all of these different perspectives trying to to kind of do so in in a way that the, the complexity of Johannesburg is also reflected in the in the complexity of the book so so we essentially weave all of these different voices together through the theme of anxiety and through the theme of Johannesburg but itself. how much of the anxiety is is tied to race. Now, I've only been to Johannesburg three times, I think. Yeah, three times. And what I've noticed was when I'm around white people, the conversation, even if you don't know them, within five minutes, the conversation descends, defaults to crime all the time. I mean, just without fail. And, and then when I'm with black people, it, it doesn't come up as much and there's not anywhere near as much anxiety. Now that might, again, my experience is very limited. Is that consistent with your experience that people have a different perception of fear and anxiety based on race? Yes, that, that, that is definitely, that's definitely a, a you know, kind of a, a through line. Um, and that, you know, kind of, as we also mentioned in, in conversation with Mingwei, crime talk is almost always talk about something else as well. You know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a, a kind of a placeholder for a whole bunch of other anxieties, including things like anxieties around the failure of the state. Keep in mind that I agree with you that, that frequently white South Africans tend to be a lot more like talkative about crime that they, they tend to harp on crime you know lots of south africans harp on crime but but for white south africans particularly but that is happening in the context where black south africans suffer disproportionately from crime you know so so they you know being black in south africa means that you're much more of a, tar a target for criminals actually than than white people among others because frequently white people are so behind many different fences and walls and security gates um but it's also uh you know it's 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 a kind of 
um, it's a it's a stand-in for for a bunch of complicated anxieties, and and who you are really inform what you're anxious about. You know, so so for example, like all of uh, we have we have contributions from from people who work with uh, with transgender migrants from other African countries who end up in Johannesburg, or with with people who um, who live on in a, in an area very far out on the side of Johannesburg where where the, the, the entire neighborhood is run by these gangs who are busy with like illegal small-scale gold mining so they kind of go down into these 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 old disused mine shafts and kind of and, and mine for gold and then menace the rest of the community to keep them away from their mine shafts so there's there's all of these kind of crazy like little little enclaves in Johannesburg where which are all ruled by different kinds of anxiety and then frequently crime talk would be this kind of kind of like layer that covers everything and like in each case when you talk to these different people they mean something slightly different when they complain about crime so if this is a topic that you are interested there's two people that i would like to recommend you read number one is journalist april Zhu, who lives in nairobi and she talks a lot about the same issues that ming wei raised in terms of of gender identity migration also marginalized populations uh, go to aprzhu.com you'll find all of her writing on on that topic Excellent, very much aligned with what Mingwei talks about. Also, uh, Yun Jung Park, uh, who is the associate director of the China Africa Research Initiative. She's an old friend of ours in the program. Uh, she's very well known in the China Africa scholarly community, but she's one of the foremost experts on the Chinese migration and assimilation in South Africa and the history of it. Is there anybody else that you could recommend if people are interested in the Chinese population and the, the diaspora population in South Africa that, that they should follow? I would suggest they also follow Karen Harris. She's at the University of South Africa. She does amazing research about the, the deep history of Chinese migration to South Africa, like pointing out that they were, they were already Chinese migrants in Cape Town in the, in the 1700s, and they were getting into fights with local populations about them kind of outworking and out-earning local populations. So, you know, she, she's, a, she's an incredible kind of archival researcher looking at kind of like old South African history. We will put links to all three of those experts in addition to a link to the book uh, that Kobus edited and that Mingwei wrote a chapter in. It's absolutely really amazing reading. I can't recommend it enough. And it really gives that historical context and perspective that is missing from so much of the current discussion on China-Africa relations writ large. So that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Kobus and I do a daily email every day, and we also do a free weekly email. We would love for you to sign up for either one just to get part of this discussion. So if you enjoyed the podcast and you really want to do a deep dive, go to our website, ChinaAfricaProject.com. Right there at the top, you'll see a sign up for the daily, e uh, I'm sorry, the weekly email. And then if you go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, there's a big subscribe button right there on the homepage. You'll get a deep dive, the most comprehensive daily digest of China Africa news on every subject. We really try to cover the breadth, everything from the type of research that Mingwei is doing to what we're talking about right now with the vaccines and the geopolitical implications of it, debt, racism, the situation that happened earlier this year in Guangzhou, basically any China story that comes up and China-Africa story that comes up, we do a full analysis of it 
on that day in the newsletter. Again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We've kept the subscription price intentionally very low to make it as accessible as possible. Just $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everyone else. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. 